This is Abalone Mountain Press Podcast. I am Amber McCrary, host of Abalone Mountain Press Podcast. Our podcast focuses on Indigenous writers and their writing journeys. We have a very special episode for episode five, and that is discussing the Diné Reader, out now by University of Arizona Press. And for this episode, I'll be interviewing one of the editors, Esther Berlin, and three of the writers slash contributors to the Diné Reader. Um, I'll be interviewing Byron Aspas, Nia Francisco, and Laura Tohi. We will be mixing up things a little bit for this episode. We have interviews, but in addition to the interviews, we have each writer um, also reading a piece from the Diné Reader. Stay tuned for that. And now we're going to get right into the interviews. Our first interview was with Esther Boleyn, one of the editors of the Diné Reader. Hi, Esther. Hi, Yate Amber. Yate, thank you for joining me today for this uh, interview about the Diné Reader. Um, I know that you were one of the editors for the Diné Reader, and I was just wondering what your editing process was like for this book. Yeah, thank you for having me here. It is um, really fun to see your work develop and to support your endeavors with writing, supporting Diné artists. So I'm I'm excited to be part of that. So yeah, and and yes, I was one of four editors for the Diné Reader. And as far as our process, you know, it, it really was kind of the basic, you know, get the idea and, and really develop it and, and, and start building from there. I think at the beginning, we had some ideas of what the book purpose would be, but as, as, as that kept building and we kept having conversations with people about the book, we realized just the importance of it and and the necessity of it and the greater our emphasis on making sure that everything was included right, that we were getting it right. And, and f- as far as what what the book looked like and the usefulness of it. And of course, I think the biggest component was that the um, other three editors and I all worked really well mm-hmm. <laughs> together. We were able to pick up and support each other on sections that just, you know, in regards to dealing with life issues and other um, obstacles along the way, just kind of filled in where we needed to. And and I think that made a big, um, it it was important in, in regards to the development of the book. So, and, and another thing I think that was kind of cool about the process, we really 
aligned it with some of the Navajo philosophies around, you know, the planning and the preparing and kind of the everyday managing and then realizing some things that were just not going to be in this volume mm. and kind of just laying some things aside. And, and a lot of the things that are included were developed in that process as well. So building relationships with each author. Many of the authors were living on the reservation and it was really important for us to meet them in whatever space they were at. So there was a couple who you know, didn't have internet access and we were writing letters using the regular postal service and, you know, meeting people in either Gallup or Farmington to kind of talk about the book and, and then working with the estates of, of two of the contributors as well. Um, those two who had passed on. Mm -hmm. So making sure that that was um, in place as, as we were going. Mm -hmm. Wow. Did you, were there any um, submissions that were like submitted by hand, like handwritten? We didn't have any handwritten submissions. No, I think so. Some of the older work, we were really lucky that we had record of them somewhere. Mm, okay. And most of the older work was previously published. So that made it a little bit easier as well. I, I think some of the harder pieces were trying to figure out uh, the emerging writers, mm. right? At the end, we, um, we were trying to fill a space and, and we weren't really sure um, a lot of so a lot of things we weren't sure on. We had some constraints. The book just kept growing in size, and and so one of the questions you know we constantly talked about was, is the book too large? Mm. You know, is this is this manageable? And is the because it's such a, a large book? What is the price? going to be because we wanted to make it affordable mm -hmm. and so those were big questions that we constantly talked about and talked with the um, publisher about as well because mm -hmm. the big thing about that we really wanted to make sure that the everyday person could afford this book that it wasn't overpriced and that they would be able to just pick it up and read it and find it useful so we at the end you know we really we didn't do any official like call outs because mostly because of time but we talked with quite a few people who knew younger writers and you know and kind of quizzed them on what type of writing they do. Cause we wanted a little bit of diversity. Like at one point we had a ton of poets, but we wanted maybe some 
nonfiction writers and then we wanted maybe fiction and um so we tried to really balance it that way and and so we didn't want to highlight any one author you know we really wanted it to be a good distribution of just the content as well as the diversity of the writing which is really what we were trying to focus on at one point okay yeah that answered a lot of questions I actually had so like I was wondering if um some of the submissions were like solicited or unsolicited and if you did do for, uh, like a call for submissions um which I don't remember seeing like, um, like, like a call for submissions. <laughs> so how long did it take for you to, um, you and Jeff and the other editors to, to finish or to the whole process of this book um, anthology? <laughs> yeah, we kind of estimate between eight and 10 years. And, and and the, I think the big reason we didn't have a, um, a submission process was because we knew we had enough material, mm -hmm. right? At, at the um, tail end, when we were talking about the emerging writers, that was the one where we, I mean, took our time to balance that component out a little bit more and because we could have filled it easily with a lot of the content from um, the, the, the writers, the early writers. Mm -hmm. And, and so we really emphasized the, and, and I guess, you know, one of the things you really emphasized was that it was, um, a book from from one tribe, from one nation, and and how unique that is, and and as we uncovered different writings and different writers, how people may have the content or the subject might have been the same, but the perspective was very unique based on the generations. So that was really fun to see as well. So I, I think um, ideally we hope to have leave the book in the book with a little window giving opportunity to others to use this as um, a foundation to create other anthologies, whether it's like mixed media or mixed genre. I mean, because we had talked about so many ideas of you know, do we do film and video or comics or, um, you know, other forms of, of writing that people are doing? And, and that's when we really had to just kind of hone it in and, <laughs> and, yeah. and finish. Wow. Yeah, I think it, it's, it definitely was a very, like, range of writers from you know, even though we're all Diné, <laughs> we, we definitely have different experiences on and off the reservation, um, you know, and that just kind of like barely touches like how mm -hmm. our experiences are so different, um, even though we are like from the same tribe. Um, but I, but that's what I like, you know, it's, I, I like, like, 
reading so many different types of stories or poems, um, especially like the first book or the first, uh, the first story in the book, like, oh, it was so good. And like, and that's the thing for like, I think it's great for like younger writers like myself or um, younger Diné writers. Like they might've not heard of like Black Horse Mitchell or Nia Francisco, which I hadn't heard of before the Diné right or the Diné reader. And like, I just love that first story in the book that like I, I ended up writing a poem after it just because it reminded me so much of like how my dad was growing up and like mm-hmm. his, like he was a sheep herder too. So like, it was really neat seeing like um, Black Horse Mitchell's like point of view for as a sheep herder. And like, I thought it was so sweet. And it just like, made me think of my dad and yeah. And, and, you know, like, so like some of the older writers, I really wanted to like seek out more of their books. Um, mm-hmm. But I was just so glad that I was able to like find like, you know, these, these older writers and like their perspectives, you know, that are similar to like my parents. And it was, it was really great to see. on Yeah. And that they, were writing, which was, I think, unusual at the time. Mm-hmm. And I, I love the story that Black Horse tells about how his, it was a writing assignment that became a book. And I think it was a prompt around, tell me where you're from, mm. you, you know, and and it was really interesting because it also speaks to the Navajo uh, storytelling, you know, nature uh, of our tribe. In that it's not just I'm from this location, and and that's the end, right? And maybe a little description around that, but it really is more of an invitation, and. And, and a journey and it's so he it I think I, I want to say that he you know took the assignment home he didn't turn it in like the other students had in the classroom but he took it home and then I think he came back like a week or two later with just like this big stack of paper mm. <laughs> and he like here's my assignment <laughs> and and that's what prompted that early discussion about this could be a book right Mm -hmm. and it is a book so that teacher initially helped him get that book published and it was a little um kind of representative of that time where he wrote it in what you know we would call like Navajo English Mm -hmm. right where the grammar wasn't correct in that sense of English, but it was understandable. Like you can understand it. And in the original forward, and I'm not sure, I I think we talked about this in the introduction, in the original forward to his book, it makes this apology um, in the prologue that says, you know, this is a good story, but apologies for the horrible grammar type thing. And so discounting all of the really unique qualities about Diné poetics and the ability 
to capture <laughs> the the culture and and those qualities using this you know different language this whole completely different foreign language mm -hmm. so it when he was able to get it republished he um responded to some of those early comments mm. okay yeah and what um hopes do you have for the Danae reader for the future you know for any future native readers or writers out there maybe they're just yeah. you know in their in elementary school or like just now coming into high school <laughs> what hopes do you have for the Danae reader you know I think my biggest hope is that it will really ground and really create a foundation for and they don't necessarily have to be writers but for the dinner people in the sense that that knowing our history and knowing everything we endured, especially through the education, that we were still able to create, you know, something beautiful, mm -hmm. right? Like that idea of that idea of beauty way is, I mean, it really is the lifeblood of who we are. And 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 that's a representation of it. So you know, whatever place people are in, knowing that they are, are, you know, people were able to create and, and still are, knowing that we are enduring and still dealing with different remnants of um, intergenerational trauma. And, and then there's people who actually just like want to be writers, mm -hmm. right? And take on that really amazing um, uh, you know kind of I'm not necessarily a burden but really take on that responsibility to um, be known as a writer and and to you know represent be representative in a way that reflects our diversity and who we are as a people today. Because I think that's really, really important. You know, one thing I see is, you know, that idea of, again, the Navajo people, the idea of the rainbow, right? So the rainbow, it, it you know, comes from the same source, but so many different variety and so many different um, elements uh, from the same thing. And that's what uh, my hope is, that it really inspires and, and branches out in, into you know, inspiration, into new stories, into established... Um, and I don't even know if it's... Um, academics, but I think it would be helpful for people who are doing graduate work in the sense that now that it's written, mm. they can link it versus where I've, I've seen people who have been challenged on their ideas of innovation around the net poetics or writing because there wasn't anything available. Mm. Right. So yeah. to support in that sense that, OK, this is what was needed so that student doesn't have to feel so alone or so isolated because, 
in their Western education, now we can at least, you know, create a little link to this that's solid where they don't have to endure, you know, and maybe be re-traumatized mm -hmm. by that whole process of trying to legitimize their writing and their culture. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's really great. I never thought of that, especially in terms of like, if someone's wanting to get their doctorate, like a Diné person and, you know, wanting mm -hmm. to go into, um, talking about their dissertation in like Diné literature or poetics, um, that they would have that resource for them. Um, yeah, that's, that's something I never thought of, but that is, that's a really great thing that um, hopefully we have readers or write our listeners out there that <laughs> can do their uh, doctoral dis dissertation on the book. That's really great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the contributors, uh, Tina, she tells a story about she got her doctoral in education and she wanted to include some of her poetry in her dissertation. And she really had to struggle to mm -hmm. get it included because they were just trying to differentiate in, in that they're not related. And, and it was so interesting and, you know, she really suffered because of that, you know, struggle where she was, because she wasn't supported and, and over a simple thing, like just including poetry, right. And, and how hurtful that was. Yeah. Um, and I'm really glad she did pursue and she was able to include some of her um, poems in, in her dissertation mm -hmm. as part of her educational experience. Hmm. Yeah, that's really inspiring. And yeah, <laughs> thank you so much for um, talking about the book and just the editorial process and your hopes for the book and yeah, it's, it's definitely a much needed piece of literature, you know, that needs to be out there. And I'm so glad, like, the response that you guys are getting for the book and, you know, it's everywhere. Mm -hmm. And that's a good thing that, like, everyone's out there reading it, buying it, uh, even taking pictures of it, you know, like, it's, yeah. like, I hope it stays like that for, like, the next I don't know, 10, 20 years that like people really, yeah. really come to like, like if maybe every Diné person can come to own this book, that'd be awesome. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, today, this is Byron reading from Interstate Badlands. My childhood community had shifted what were once dirt roads are now paved with loose gravel. The elementary school I attended is no longer standing. A sandy mound of ghost memory remains. In the dark, a new school stands erected, tall like a double-layered cake decorated with concrete. Its bright lights flicker upon a once-darkened neighborhood. My dad was not home when I opened the door. Since mom died, I am told he is never home, but the porch light remained on and I sat in silence listening to the refrigerator speak. 
As usual, it hummed and echoed down the hallway where I laid in mom's room, wrapped, awaiting slumber. For 13 years, my dad worked as a heavy equipment operator for the Pittsburgh Midway Coal Company. For 13 years, I watched dad leave on a Sunday evening and return Friday afternoon, sometime before school ended, and each weekend began with a surprise, but then it ended with sadness and goodbyes. For 13 years, my dad traveled 100 miles away to live on a drag line as big as our house. He operated the crane for money, scooping coal for the home we occupied in New Mexico. For 13 years, he worked the night shift, and mom became our dad while dad became a creature of the night, working the 12 to 8 shift, his eyes red with no sleep. For 13 years, mom began to show age while dad remained ageless. Because of nightmares and fear of sleeping at home, I began to travel with dad to his work site. Once he snuck me into the coal pits and I watched the crane move slowly like a brontosaurus dipping into a lake of rock. I slept in the back of my sister's car, wrapped in dad's blankets, listening to the moan of the machinery. I was nine years old. Upon driving home one morning, I watched the sun color the desert bright yellow and brown, then noticed the white lines drift to the middle of the car. Dad, I screamed. Dad's eyes opened as he directed our vessel to the side of the road. We were 50 miles away from home on a two-lane highway located between Gallup and Shiprock. Highway 666 was known for its head-on collisions. Maybe all those who crashed were just as tired as Dad. Do you think you can drive, son? He asked. I can try, I said. It's almost like the motorcycles at home. All you need to do is steer. I'll have my foot on the pedal, he said. Sit on my lap, son. Okay, I said. For 50 miles, my dad held his foot on the pedal. My foot rested upon his foot to add pressure to the gas if needed. With one eye closed, he kept watch on the asphalt river ahead. With me positioned at the helms, my guidance was trusted as I led us home, down the highway and through the windy dirt roads of the Burnham Badlands. At age 10, my foot reached the pedals of my sister's car. No longer a pirate with one eye closed, my dad began to sleep comfortably. As I aged, landscape became present when purple mounds of clay turned mile markers and the badlands of Burnham became a map for story. Scattered rocks read from fire revealed truths of a story I heard when Monster Slayer and, a, and his sibling fought evil. Pittsburgh Midway Coal Company devoured mountains while Dad remained employed with them. Behind our home, the Navajo coal mine has nibbled at the Burden Badlands for 30 years since I began driving and nibbled at my memory because those stories are now gone. I was not innocent, remember. I was like the coyote. Our cars needed food, our homes needed food, and our appliances needed power, which was like food. We consumed like monsters. That was Byron Aspis reading an excerpt from the Diné Reader. Um, I'm just going to read his bio before um, getting into our interview. Byron F. Aspis is Tachitni, born for Tortichitni, raised within the four sacred mountains of Diné Ta. Aspis holds BA and MA degrees in creative writing, 
from the Institute of American Indian Arts. Aspis's writing revisits the destruction of sacred land and engages his readers in a dialogue about preserving Diné culture and land. And now, this is our interview. Let's welcome Byron. Hello. Hey. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm hanging in there. Yeah. I was talking about the the badness of technology and trying to figure it out. So, yeah. It's one of those days. Yeah. Well, I think like when it comes to like Zoom and all that stuff, you kind of need like an AV degree, it seems like. <laughs> That's true. Um, I, I, I teach a class. And so um, there was one student who she couldn't get on to Zoom for a while. And I, um, I, she says, I can't, I can't put my, my video up. And I guess maybe I was blocking her this whole time. So I didn't know we could do that. Oh, (laughs) so Claudia, (laughs) so Claudia, if you're listening, I'm sorry. So, (laughs) (laughs) oh, so she couldn't like join the conversation or she just like her, her face wasn't like in the her, Zoom. Her face wasn't part of the conversation. You know, I could hear her through her audio, but she couldn't get her video up. And I thought it was on her side this whole time, but I guess I can, I guess I'm the puppet master and I can block people if I needed. So I didn't know I did that. So, Aww. yeah, <laughs> I know. So anyway. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> or as my grandma Anyways. says, anyway. <laughs> I do the same thing. I'm like, I go home and I'm like, anyways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like to say it like my grandma. Um, yeah, you you just got back from the res from Fruitland. Ah. From Fruitland, I was uh, there like Zoolander, being all <laughs> fashionable. And and I just yeah no I'm joking it wasn't like that but sometimes <laughs> I think I want to believe that <laughs> and yeah that was actually my first question was where did you grow up um, yeah well I I was born in Shiprock but I was um, raised in the Upper Fruitland region which is just shy of the reservation line up on the hill. We were like ants on top of there in between the um, Nappy region. Do you know where Nappy is? Mm-hmm. The Navajo agricultural product industry. So I was encased in a little community within all of those. Uh, I think there's just over 250 crop circles out there. Mm. So yeah, I grew up in the desert there. So it was definitely... Um, a culture shock to come to the, a place like this because of all the green. And mm-hmm. I think you saw the photos of how arid and desolate and dusty it was out there. Coming here has just been like a, like a shocker. Mm-hmm. So, And where yeah. are you now? I, I am currently in Colorado Springs. So mm. it's, um, yeah. So I've been mm-hmm. living here for about eight years now. Um, 
but yeah, current, I, previously I lived in Santa Fe for about seven years. So, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's where I got my degrees. That's where I went to school actually. So everything mm-hmm. is accidental with me when you think about it. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I think I, I talk about that in my work. Um, it, it's going to be spoken about in, in my mm-hmm. work and, um, how I, I was an accidental student and where I am now. So, yeah. Yeah. So, but I, I grew up on the res for about 30 years in the same house. I was talking to my, my friend there and told them my house that I grew up in is like 40 years old now. So, but it's wow. still standing like, like a rock out there and still housing my, my, my dad and my sister. So, mm. yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, um, so I guess this kind of, we're skipping questions, we're kind of moving questions around, but like, so how old were you when you went to undergrad? I was 32. So yeah, I was 32 years old. I look very young, you know, so most people (laughs) think, no, I'm kidding. Well, you do. That's why I'm always like, I'm always like trying to like imagine you like navigating all these things like 20, 30 years ago or whatever. And I'm just like, but you look so young and you like seem so young. So like when I talk to you, I feel like I'm talking to like someone my age. <laughs> yeah, I was probably your age when I started school and um, 2009 is when I went back and I, I was living in Santa Fe for about a year and, um, Connie Jacobs, who is the, one of the editors for the Danette Reader had mentioned the Institute of American Indian Arts. And when I, I took her class back in 2000, 2001, and I, she's the one who introduced me to Navajo writers. And I had no idea that there were such things and, she introduced me to uh, Esther Boleyn. Well, foremost, uh, Lucy Tapahansa, then Esther Boleyn. Mm. And she was so fascinated with my writing then, but I was only taking it because it was, an, it was part of the curriculum for an engineering degree. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so I waited like the last of my teachings to take that class, which is so funny. And um, she loved she loved the way I wrote story and it reminded her of Lucy Tapahanso. And so she introduced me to Lucy and, and also uh, Esther and Simon Ortiz and other, you know, various writers out there at that time. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I didn't know I was going to be a writer. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you still, so. do you still, would you consider yourself a writer? No. To this day. <laughs> yeah, so that, yeah, we're skipping to the third question almost. Like, I love that you're not a traditional writer where you always knew you're going to write from like a very young age and um, how you came into writing at a much later age, you know. I, and I can relate to that because um, I didn't get into writing until I was about 26, 27. Um, I liked reading when I was young and I kept like journals and 
all that. But you said you didn't finish your first, like didn't finish reading your first book until you're 24. Um, you know, and like, I see, like, I feel like, like most writers like that are like really on top of their game are like coming out with books when they're 24. And I'm just like, what? Like, I, I don't, I don't know what, like, I, yeah. (laughs) Um, so what advice do you have to give to folks that haven't found their talent until like much later in life? Take their time. I mean, I was, uh, uh, I was actually working as an intern student at the Bureau of Land Management in Wyoming. And I got stuck there one weekend and found a book. And it was uh, The Color Purple. And I just decided to read it since I didn't have nowhere to go all weekend. And I remember crying when I read this book. And it was just, you know, it was kind of forced upon me to read it, but I read it for an actual, like, I'm going to read this for content as before. I did read some books in high school, but if you ask me what I read, I, I couldn't tell you a thing about it, you know, because I read it the last minute and skimmed through it enough to, to cheat my way through, you know, passing an exam. But I never even wrote journals. I, I, I think I started and I mentioned that in the Deneff Reader. Of, mm-hmm. of starting one, but I never, I, I wish I would have kept journals. That's one thing I, I would give to young minds today is keep a journal, especially during the pandemic. And, you know, this is an important time and a remembrance for what our people or what the people mm-hmm. of this world are enduring right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and to read, you know, I, I didn't read growing up and I, I was outside all the time and I, w- I was particularly a boy, you know, mm-hmm. um, I went to the library to go play rather than to, to read and had cool toys. So, <laughs> huh. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah um, so. wow. Like I'm trying to think of, um, if I was the same way in high school, <laughs> mm-hmm. I actually, yeah, well, you know, I was always, I, I really liked reading when I was younger, but I really like that you said that, um, you know, take your time. I think that's really important. Like I, when I was in my twenties, I felt like this pressure that I always needed to like do something big, you know? Um, cause I was in my twenties and like everyone else was doing like a lot of really great things like at my age. And, um, I'm actually really glad I waited until my thirties to start, <laughs> to start publishing, you know, because I feel like that's when I finally reached a point where I think I was ready to write and I was ready to tell my yeah. story. Um, I don't think I was ready in my twenties to write. I mean, I'm sure some people are ready, you know, they're ready to tell their story, but I feel like it's important to not have that pressure to feel like you need to write, you know? Yeah. I don't, I don't understand the, the willingness to be a writer at such a young age because writing is about experience and, Mm -hmm. you know, to read about high school love or even at that, I'm just like, my goodness, you know, like you have the whole 
rest of your life to find love, you know, mm -hmm. um, that one important moment, maybe then may have been a stepping stool for what only you're going to experience afterwards. And I look at writing in that sense of like, um, how to tell story in, in grad and during when I was taking my bachelor's, they were asking me, how do you have so much story? I'm like, well, I'm, I'm like a middle-aged man almost, you know, I'm 30 plus years and I'm sitting with 21 year old kids who are writing about love. And I'm like, I, I just, you know, and I worked full time and I worked, I didn't live on a campus. I, I had a, a, a real life that I had to kind of find my way to survive. And so mm. I, I just didn't traditionally fall back on, I want to be a writer, you know, <laughs> that is my dream. So <laughs> shit, I, I told stories to get out of trouble. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, kind of similar to you. Like I, I kind of had like a life before I did my MFA, like, um, you know, I was working, I already had like a career quote unquote, um, but it was in public health. And that was like a major turning point when I started getting published and like my, I was doing the zine stuff and like, I was like at this crossroads of like, should I go for my master's in public health? And I knew that for sure was going to be job security. And I knew I would have a job once I get out. And like, I knew I would always like be okay. <laughs> and of course me, I'm always the type that chooses like the hard stuff in life. So I decided to go for my MFA in creative writing. <laughs> And I was the second well, oldest um, person in my cohort. I was kind of like the mom. It was interesting. Wow. Yeah, it, it was definitely um, interesting to go back as an adult with people who were 10 plus years younger than me. So it was, um, yeah, it was definitely interesting. So I'm kind of glad I waited. Plus, I was doing something that I kind of learned to love as opposed to when I was going to school for engineering and kind of forced myself to learn all that stuff, um, which I realized is still part of me right now currently. So, yeah, it's made me more well-rounded. So Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah and then so. we wouldn't have met if we weren't, you know, writers. <laughs> Yeah, I have a little niece who is struggling right now. She just graduated last year. And you may have met her last year at the uh, uh, Emerging Deneff Writers. But, you know, she she wanted to be something. I think my family had kind of, like, put her on this pedestal to be something great. But then the pandemic hit, which kind of mm. kicked that pedestal from underneath her. And so she wasn't, she wasn't like a traditional student to go from high school to, to college. She was stuck at home still. And so it's kind of blurred those visions for the future. And so she's trying to figure herself out now, but um, she's, she, I think she wants to look more into creativity of the creative writing aspect. So mm. we'll see what happens. Wow. So, That's yeah. super cool. Yeah. Are you, are you like a mentor for her? 
I've, I've done a lot of reading for her over high school and stuff. And to see the language that she uses today, which is something I use as a 30 plus year old man, which I just learned, you know, a few years ago. It's weird to, to, to hear her speak at such a young age and to see her able to deconstruct, you know, um, I guess, thought and, and, and bring out. And it's just amazing what high school students are capable of doing that I have to learn as a grown adult. <laughs> yeah. Freaks me yeah. I think it's, I, but I think it's great, you know, if there are like younger folks that like don't have to go through all that hardship in their twenties. Cause like they kind of already mm-hmm. figured it out and they're very smart, you know, like emotionally mm-hmm. like mature, <laughs> which I wasn't yeah. in my twenties. So like, I always <laughs> like look up to people that like are, they don't, you know, they kind of already have it together or it took me like 10 years, you know, and then on top of that like trying to like travel on my own just figure out what I'm doing who I am and I mean even though like that's still like a good part of like figuring out who you are taking your time but I think it's also like very admirable for like those Danae youth that like kind of already know what they want to do and they're very like um have that emotional intelligence and that like emotional maturity too. Cause I yeah. was, I was not at, I was not like that in my 20s. No. Um, yeah. And I, yeah, I'm, I'm in my 40s now, like my mid 40s, and I still don't have it together. And I teach um, continue education with the Institute of American Indian Arts. And I, I don't know, like, am I, am I ready to be an adult or an elder? I still am treading mm. those lines of like, am I, am I ready to teach? And so, but it's been, it's been very comforting to, to do it because people look up to me and I am filled with the knowledge that I guess I, I, I learned to, to accept. And so, mm-hmm. yeah. That's, yeah, that's, I think so. Yeah. Like, I mean, <laughs> Reading your um, your your piece in the DNA Reader, which is titled "Interstate Badlands," you talk about your dad working for the Pittsburgh Midway Coal Company, and at mm-hmm. times you would travel with your dad to his work site. And you say that the in the Reader that Pittsburgh Midway Coal Company devoured mountains, while Dad remained employed with them. And then you say at the end of the paragraph. Our cars needed food. Our appliances needed power, which was like food. We consumed like monsters. As a child of a father that worked for a coal company, I have always been curious about your thoughts about coal companies on the Navajo Nation, um, which is a very complicated history between coal companies, the land, and the residents of Navajo Nation um, who happen to live on certain parts of the land that coal companies mine on. Um, I, and that's actually kind of where I like met you was at AW. Well, I didn't meet you, but I saw your presentation at AWP in Portland. And you kind of discussed a little bit about that, like um, being a part of a family that was affected by like um, uh, mining and coal companies. So yeah. I just wanted to hear your thoughts on that. 
Yeah. Um, there's, I am working on a collection of essays that talk about um, my experience of growing up on the reservation. Uh, my brother um, passed away when I was 13 of leukemia and realized, I didn't realize then what the cause of it was. And being that accidental student that I keep talking about, I ended up in an intro to indigenous studies class at IA and um, the last um, part of the class was to write about a current um, um, issue, but incorporate it uh, uh, with an experience. And so my brother has always been a big part of my life. And by then it was 20 years and my mom was ending her life at that moment. And it's just, I realize now that, you know, like sitting in that indigenous studies class and then traveling back home and seeing how the landscape had shifted since my childhood, what was not there is, what was there is not there anymore. I've noticed the horizons turn brown and, and gloomy and it doesn't snow anymore. Those things are, were important to me as a child and, I lived right next to a power plant. Like my my evenings were sitting at, at the basketball court watching a power plant, you know, create gloom and doom and not realize it, but it was very, but it's what it's what fed us, you know. Um, my dad didn't work at that particular power plant or the coal mine. He he had to drive a hundred miles to Gap, um, which was Windorock, uh, and 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 live on a coal mine for 13 years and or live on a drag line for 13 years. And so me having to experience him do that. And I, I went back with him one time and realized that, no, I went back as an adult and I just realized all of the, the mountains that were there where my mom is from are gone. Like it's just, it's just rolling hills and, I'm like, what are we doing to uh, to to our lands in order to survive? You know, like capitalized and I took like uh, critical theory and learned about capitalism and communism and all that stuff and realized where where we've become those monsters that we speak about in our stories, like where we're feeding on them. And so, you know, my dad, my dad was a boarding school student. And so my mom was a Catholic schoolgirl. Like all those teachings that I have come to learn are from a more colonized mindset. And so, you know, I, I, I listen to my friends and my dad. I sit with my dad now and he's like, where did you learn all this stuff? And I'm like, my, my friends, my friends are my teachers now. And, you know, like it's just become this, this big circle of learning from each other from different parts of the Navajo Nation to bring together story and so it's just it's been a big thing for me so it's something I, I, I cherish and hopefully one day I can I, I can share it I, I don't know if I'm ready to share it though so yeah, yeah. but the piece was definitely about the, the piece you're referring to it, 
it centers around my brother who passed away from leukemia and learning about how cancer is caused from power plants, how power plants are run by coal mines. Um, toward the end of my mom's life, I realized that it was a cancer that took her away. Mm. And so um, it made me realize that that monster, you know, is, is still around. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And yeah. it's like, you know, and it's not just one part of like Navajo nation. It's like, you see it in so many different areas and it's like, it can't just be a coincidence, you know? And I mean, I, I sent you that, um, the blessing, um, documentary on PBS and like, just seeing that like happening with like Black Mesa and like Peabody Coal. And yeah, I mean, even though it, it recently closed last year and they like showed the destruction of the Navajo generating station outside of Page, like, you know, cause it's a big power plant. And I always remember, you know, driving from Shanto to Page and like seeing that power plant and like um, not realizing that it was, you know, supplying electricity for the whole Southwest and Las Vegas and the LA and like, you know, and you don't realize that that they're they're getting the coal from Black Mesa and you don't realize that that's the coal that Mesa you drive by all the time to visit your grandma is what's you know supplying electricity for all these big cities where no one knows what you know most people don't care about Navajos or we're you know we're invisible so it's like we're invisible, but we're the ones that, you know, is keeping you cool in the summer. You know, our land is the thing that's, you know, um, keeping you warm during the winter. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's just very interesting how indigenous invisibility is like a very real thing. And like how, how it's, it's no one really knows about that. Like they don't know where the electricity comes from. Cause you know, yeah. it's, it's not affecting their land. And that's something that I always feel like, <laughs> you know, as, as I've learned, you know, about indigenous mm-hmm. studies that, um, you know, the, and it goes way back beyond like Peabody and Black Mesa, like for my end, it's my, my family wasn't coal miners, but like my father's from Hard Rock and, um, his family was displaced cause they were originally on the, they used to live on the Hopi area land and because of Peabody and that the whole Black Mesa like coal stuff like they were taught to like or they they were forced off of their land and all of their livestock was taken away and from there like that really kind of broke like my dad's family spirit where like everyone they didn't have livestock and that was their wealth you know and Mm -hmm. because of that like they all went into depression and a lot of them kind of just like drank themselves to death, including my, my grandfather. And, and, you know, that's like part of the effects of like, you know, being displaced and um, being, have everything, you know, taken away from you. And it's all from, you know, from what happened with Peabody coal and, and black, you know, black Mesa coal and all that. And it's just like, it's just such a complicated history. <laughs> Yeah, and stuff they don't teach you in in school as a Navajo kid are is is that history you know that is stripped away from you and 
you know, it's me kind of learning that history and now talking to my, to, to my babies, my nieces and nephews and, 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 and leaving those, you know, little kernels of knowledge for them to peck at here and there. So, yeah, it's, it's something important. So. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's interesting. Cause like for my dad's side, all he ever would talk about is the Navajo Hopi land dispute, which is, which is the whole, you know, everything that happened with Peabody and Navajo nation and Hopi nation. But like, I, you know, I would just hear it, but I didn't really know what it was until I like went to college and I started piecing everything together. Um, and that's when I finally like learned how to verbalize it or learn how to like write it in stories or write it in poetry. Cause before I was just like, I have no idea. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like you're, you're saying these words, but I don't really understand what they mean. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, I, I, most people, it's so funny. Yeah. I, I just, I write, I write, I write my own history, I guess is what I'm trying to do. And it's, we'll, we'll see what happens. So yeah. things of experience, um, everything is in a creative, creative nonfiction format. Most people think I'm reading poetry, but I'm like, when you look at it, it's, it's a, it's a whole essay. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's, it comes together. So, yeah. Yeah. And like, I just love that this Danae reader, you know, it highlights all of these like stories and, mm -hmm. you know, it, most people probably think Navajos have like the same story, but it's like, yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. we have similar experiences, but not every story is the same. And, and that's what I love about this Danae reader. And especially it introduced me a lot to like some of the older readers, I mean, older writers, like elder writers that I never heard of. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, like Nia Francisco, I find I got her to read her poetry and I'm going to be interviewing her next week. So I'm like really excited. Yeah. Amazing. I've always wanted to do a podcast, but I, I didn't know how to begin it. And who knows, this is my first uh, interview on a podcast. No, second. I don't know. It sounds, <laughs> it just looks fun. <laughs> yeah, it could be fun. Um <laughs> I, yeah, it can be fun, but then you have to like edit and then promote it. Oh yeah. We have less than a minute. Um, is there any last minute, last words you would like to say? No, I just really appreciate this. It's, it's, it's like getting to know you all like, we don't know each other well enough, but it's, it's nice to chat and, and, and get to know each other more personable so mm -hmm. yeah. yeah I really appreciate this yeah me too <laughs> and these are awesome conversations <laughs> yeah <laughs> all righty so, uh my my technological issues are hopefully don't continue yeah I just realized yeah I, I was like I didn't even look at the time to realize to notice that we only had 40 minutes and then it was going to cut yeah. us off probably pretty soon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but no, again, I, I really appreciate this. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. 
for those who are younger, keep writing, just journal and read. It's the only way to learn a language that is going to probably help you. And yeah, and when I say that, I mean more or less in the colonial sense <laughs> um, is, is the best way to put it. So I, I yeah, anyhow, yeah. Anyway, all right. Anyways. <laughs> Thanks for letting me interview you. You're welcome. And hopefully we can chat again. My next interview is with Nia Francisco. Nia Francisco is Ashii. I hope I'm saying that right. Born for Ashihi. Her maternal grandfather is Kiaani, and her paternal grandfather is Tatnasane. And here is my interview with Nia. I am Nia Francisco, and I am um, Tashi, um, Ashi, Vashishin, Kiaani, Dashiche, Ado, Tatnasane, E Dashinale. Hi, Nia. Thank you for um, letting me interview you today. Okay. Hagoshi? Hagoshi. Um, first question is, when did you start writing? I started um, learning how to write English um, and became more um, more confident in it until I was pretty much like in ninth grade or so. But um, I started writing uh, creatively through um, when I was attending the Institute of American Indian Arts um, in that, that's established in Santa Fe. Um, there was a a creative writing class, and um, since I struggled with English, I thought, well, maybe I can, you know, learn how to write, read and write. <laughs> so that that's pretty much how where I started. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Um, was was Navajo your first language? Navajo is my first language, and English is my second second language. Oh. Okay, and um, I noticed you you've written a couple you've written a poem in the Diné Reader that's in Navajo. Would you find it um, challenging to write poems in Navajo, or do you would you find it easier? It wasn't um, difficult. It was just a thinking, the thinking like. I remember my, you know, just a memory from my childhood and thinking it through in Navajo. It mm. wasn't an, an, an interpretation uh, uh, like, I guess, some writers or they, they do write it in one language and then they come in and interpret it into a second language, a different language. But that mm. one, it was just all Navajo thinking. Oh, huh. That's interesting. And then, um, so when you write in English, do you think of it in Navajo first? 
I, I, I wasn't very conscious of what I do, but it really starts with having the images mm. and oh. the, the images first and, and, and then finally, um, how it would it be best expressed, which language. If I had a third language, that would be great. You know, I'd, I'd, <laughs> I'd have three mm-hmm. choices. Uh, but, um, I, I'm not, if my thinking about what is, you know, I'd like to write about, if it's really coming out strong in, um, Navajo, then I say mm-hmm. it's best to say it in Navajo. Um, Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I, I like how you said that you see the image first. That's kind of how I am when I write. <laughs> and then I'm just really? trying to describe uh-huh. it. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so in some of your writings, you you I feel like you write things that might not be as, um, I guess, People don't talk about it as much. Um, so I was wondering, how do you find the courage to break the silence to talk about the unsaid in Navajo society? So things like, um, you know, abuse or um, um, even your ode to a drunk woman. Like, usually we're kind of taught, like, you're just supposed to see that and not that's something you're not supposed to be, but you kind of, you kind of write it in a way like this is our sister and we need to, we still need to recognize that like she is our relative. Um, and she's like, you know, been through a lot of trauma or, you know, stuff. So like, I, I feel like that's something that I didn't, I haven't really read too much about in, a lot of Navajo poems, so that's why your poems really stood out to me, like um, Ode to a Navajo Woman or Iridescent Child. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to know how you find the courage to to break the silence and write write about um, certain things that we don't really talk about in Navajo society. Um, I thought about that, and it starts with a wish wishing mm. to be able to say what's in my self about you know that that and i think in that um um oh to a drunk woman um there's i was making a connection of um saying that she's still a human being Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the present days, um, a lot of the, um, there is recovery for alcoholism and mm-hmm. a lot of times it's, it's, um, it's the alcohol that is, you know, affecting the person and the person is still a person and, mm-hmm. um, and I didn't, ha- I don't, I didn't know I had that wisdom back then when I wrote that O2 drunk woman. But I knew, uh, through my upbringing, through, well, my grandfather, my Nolly man and my Nolly women, 
um they looked at people as they're a human being mm. they're five finger people um mm-hmm. so it seemed like that's a very strong uh value that I wanted to state in in, in that poem yeah it's a very strong poem and uh, I was I don't know. I was blown away by all of your poems, but yeah, like that's that poem, you know, I've never seen any type of poem like that before. Uh-huh. <laughs> Especially like a national poem. So I was like, wow, like I just I'm I'm just uh-huh. yeah, like interested in how, you know, you 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 found the courage or or even like you said it's a wish, just a wish to humanize um you know, Navajo this Navajo woman that maybe people might see less that's less than human. So I think, yeah, you did. It was a really, really great poem. Very powerful. Wow. Thank you. That's, that's, mm-hmm. that, that, that really, um, that touches me now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and last question is, what are you currently reading? Um, what I have read, um, uh, there's actually three three um, books. They I have uh, Wild Swan, and this is um, done by uh, John Chang. I mm-hmm. don't know if I'm saying the right name right, but she's um. Korean, and she mm-hmm. and her mother had gone through um, uh, a survival from one generation to another generation in North Korea. And the publisher is Simon and Simon and Chester, and, and it was mm-hmm. in 1991. The other mm-hmm. story, very similar. And that is uh, done by um, Yangmin Park, mm-hmm. and her editor or her the person that helped her is Marianne Fillers, and it's done by Penguin Book, 2016. Oh. And the title of the book is In Order to Live. And that hmm. is a very, um, it's also a survival story. It's a um telling uh, like this is what we had to do in order to live um hmm. uh the other um book that i read is called the poison wood bible and that's done hmm. by barbara king solver and it was by hmm. hopper collin hopper collin hmm. and 1998 um that is a woman Story. Uh, this is what I survived, and this is what we did. Um, and it, 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 it was a very, uh, very, very. All of them are very, very touching um, and real. They, they really mm-hmm. happen. They're, yeah. Yeah. And, and now you... the mm-hmm. the one book that I'm reading is called The Netra. And that's a historical uh, story by 
oh gosh, I don't know the name of the author um, on that one. It's just called Anetra. Mm, okay. Yeah, so the, the the books that you're talking about that talk about survival, would you say that they inspire you to write your own story or write um, poetry about your survival? I don't see it as like I'm going to, you know, this is going to inspire me because I'm not writing right now. However, mm-hmm. um I am very I'm stimul I'm still stimulating my own, you know, um I guess I'm I, I have a feeling I have an incub- incubation uh time where, you know, I'm not trying to produce work or or so and so I'm just you know, this other stuff, what what what, what what's going on, you know, in the world. Mm-hmm. And um and the, the the people that tell their story, it, it's very very um, worthwhile to hear them, mm-hmm. to read them. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, yeah. So thank you for this interview, and I, I was really glad that I was able to interview you, and even though it took a couple times and. <laughs> We had housework happening and where I live, but uh, I'm glad that we were able to do this interview. Um, Could you take us out with a a reading, one of your readings? Okay. um, The other thing before I finish, uh, after I read, I'd like to introduce myself, what my clans are. Uh, Okay. Okay. I I would do that, too. Um. Do you want to choose what I'm going to read, or? Uh, I'd say it's up to you. Okay. Well, um, since we talked about Ode to a Drunk Woman, maybe I could do that. Okay. Cool. Okay. Okay. Um Oh, to a drunk woman, number one, dear Lady Earth with swollen wits, your beauty comes and goes. Those shoes you wear, muddy tennis tennis, you don't know a tennis game, not even an experience of that game. But those tennis stagger into a bootlegger's joint. Number two. Dear Lady Dusty, bundle warm this warm day. You stand by a highway, possibly hitching from eddies to tropics to Navajo Inn. I saw you wearing your scarf, red, yellow flowers covering your head, a scarf shadowing your dark skin, a face that is only a face, and in the shadow of that scarf, Bloodshot eyes sparkled, sad and thirsty. Number three. Dear lady, with Roma delusions, my ancestors beaded inside you. You are my mother. Mother, see us. We are sober but drunk. 
with that pain caused by the same damn shame you learn. Number four, as your children will stay and our delusions are colorful, red yarn tied around braids. So um, at this part of the reading, I think I might have lost connection with Nia or one of our cell phone connections was um, not working. Uh, We got to the fourth stanza and I don't know. I've been thinking about it and I was just going to leave it the way it was. But I think I'll I'll finish the poem for her um, just so that all the readers can hear the rest of the poem. And she left off at... Red yarn tied around braids, our minds twisting in rage to overcome that same damn shame you learned. Five. And only now I see we remain like you, mother, again hitchhiking again from Albuquerque to Gallup to Window Rock, Chinley and the shadows of distant clouds hiding our red, tired faces. Six. Dear lady drunk, we are together again, unalike, and we love you still as our mother clan. And I just want to thank Nia for... Uh, letting me do an interview with her. She is out in New Mexico, out on Diné Piquea. And um, yeah, I'm just very honored to to read her poetry, uh, to interview her. And um, yeah, just one of those great, really great poems that you definitely have to check out in the Diné Reader. Um, along with everyone else, they they have amazing poetry. And speaking of amazing poetry, my last interview is with Laura Tohi. Laura is Se Naha Bithne and born for Twadichitni, born in Fort Defiance, Arizona. Tohi grew up in Crystal, New Mexico, near the Cheska Mountains on the Diné homeland. Her father was a Navajo code talker. In an interview, she notes, I grew up speaking Diné as my primary language. While growing up, I heard stories all around me. As we drove down the dusty road, my mother told many Diné stories. Tohi graduated with a BA in psychology from the University of New Mexico in 1975 and earned an MA from the University of Nebraska in 1985 and a PhD from the University of Nebraska in 1993. Thank you for letting me interview. (laughs) Thanks for letting me interview you today for the Danae Reader. You're welcome. Thanks for asking me to have it be part of your podcast. Yeah. Um, So my first question is, what do you love about writing? Uh, I think there's a lot of things I like about writing. I like the idea, you know, the idea of taking something out of 
a word or an image or a thought or a memory um, or, you know, it could be something somebody said or something I read. I think that's really exciting because from that you can create your own poem, uh, a story, a narrative. Uh, in my case, since I mostly write poetry, I can write a poem from that. And so that's really exciting to see how it came from just maybe a kernel. Um, and then it developed into lines and images and words. And finally, you know, you have a poem. And so I think that's really exciting to see something like that just created, you know, and to see that from the beginning to the end, it's, I love that process. Um, that's really exciting for me, but I also share, like sharing it when it goes out into the world for other people to read. So that's, mm -hmm. um, it's kind of interesting to see where these poems go, you know, cause I've had people call me and ask me to send a, this poem to them or permission to use that poem. And I always wonder, you know, how did they get my poem? So it's, mm -hmm. my work is out there in the world. And that's, that's really, um, that's really another thing I love about writing. Mm -hmm. That's neat. Um, I like how you said that the poem is like a kernel and I kind of, at least with what I'm working on right now, a lot of it has to do with like blue corn and like Navajo corn and indigenous corn. So <laughs> I feel like, <laughs> I feel like that's kind of what I, this, what I've been writing this whole like three years has like just started out as a little kernel and then it just kind of like has been growing and growing. Like as I've been like working on each poem for like three years, um, just, you know, trying to improve the poet, the poem or edit it. And I, so that I feel like that's like definitely like a good image of like how poetry can work. And like, especially with the editing process, like it helps it grow into something mm -hmm. like something like really beautiful, you know? Yeah. And that's, you know, that's a really great metaphor. I think, you know, using the corn as a metaphor for how a poem can grow upward and creates these leaves and pollen and you know and then it's when it's time to eat then you harvest it you know and so it's really really like writing and yeah, yeah. and so sometimes it takes a while for it to grow you know I've been working on a poem for almost a year now you know and I go back to it every once in a while and I work on it some more and then I think I'm done and then no I'm not so <laughs> it's just really a long process I'm still watering it and mm -hmm. you know babying it along <laughs> yeah. yeah and then like you mentioned harvesting I feel like when you're ready to harvest the poem it's like ready to be read by the public <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah That's cool. right. or you're ready to send it out into the world in a book mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really neat. I really like that that um, mm -hmm. metaphor. Um, yeah, so with the Diné Reader, um, I was wondering, what do you hope Diné people that are reading this book, like what do you hope they um, get out of it from, from reading these stories of uh, other Diné people? Well, I think this is such a wonderful book and it's a wonderful opportunity, I think, for the Navajo people to um, realize, you know, that there are many Navajo writers that have been writing for years. 
And it's only been recently that we've had a lot of Navajo Genet writers uh, writing and writing books and winning awards, giving poetry readings. And so I'm really thinking this is so great that, you know, that we finally have a book, a Genet reader that uh, can go out um, to our own nation of people because these are all Dineh writers. And I really want the Navajo people to appreciate um, that we have this enormous talent uh, of people, you know, young people and, you know, older um, whose work is being acknowledged and supported. And so it was really great. Um, when we had that first um, reading that Jeff Berglund and some of the others put together, um, the president of the Navajo Nation and the first lady were there. So I was really happy to see that. I would like to see us grow even more to keep the metaphor going. I would like to see it, this book be taught in the schools mm -hmm. on the Navajo Nation so that not only the teachers, but the students and the younger generation will know who our writers are and appreciate that we have our own uh, genre of literature in books, you know, and I, I would want them to read it and I would want them to appreciate it. I would want them to know that this work is a reflection of them too. It's partly their story, you know, mm -hmm. so it's not just the poet's story, but it's, you know, the community's story. And I would like students to see their reflection in these poems that have been written um, from many years ago, and that's continuing to evolve with the younger Navajo writers, you know, so I really hope that um, younger people will see that this is another way you can appreciate and love words is by writing and by sharing these poems that have been written. It's, it's tremendous. And I'm really happy that, you know, this book came along because I think we're having a renaissance, you know, now a renaissance of literature. And I'm thinking that we may even have the most uh, native writers of all the tribes in the country. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's, that's really wonderful too, to, to have that as part of our nation that we appreciate uh, literature, that we appreciate poetry. And this is kind of a new thing you know, we've had stories, we've had prayers, we have traditional ceremonies and, and traditional songs. And then this is kind of new. And so it's adding uh, to our culture, to the Navajo literary culture. And so that's really, um, that's really something to acknowledge and, you know, for other people to acknowledge as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, yeah, I think that's a very wonderful answer. And I hope that, you know, people are inspired to like write their own stories. And I think um, I was, I just kind of like flipped through some of the, the book and I think there's a few like uh, exercises where you can teach the book. So I thought yeah. that was really cool. Yeah. Like questions and um. Mm -hmm things just to ask if they are teaching the book. So I thought that was really cool. 
yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know if you want to take us out with a, a poem that you want to read from the Diné reader. Okay. Yes. Okay. I can do that. Well, this is a really long poem. How much time do I have? Mm. You can read it. <laughs> it's a long yeah. poem. Uh, maybe it's too long, so I'll, I'll pick a shorter one. I think you said a short one earlier, so I'll do that. Um, so. Some of these poems I notice, like when there's people of my generation that listen to this or read it, they can identify with it because some of them did go to boarding schools. Because mm. some of these poems are from my first book, From No Parole Today, and they get it, you know. And then the younger generation is like, it sounds like my parents' generation, <laughs> you know. So. <laughs> Yeah, actually, well, I think that's the book we have here at Palabras that I'm going to use for the giveaway. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, okay, so I'll do Easter Sunday. This is also from in No Parole Today. My family and I, we used to go up to Toshkai Mountains near Tohachi, and we would just go up there just to have a picnic, you know, go like in two cars and my brothers and my uncle and all the men would go gather the wood and we, they would build a fire. And my grandmother always had a grill and she brought that along, coffee pot and, you know, all the food. And so the, while the men went out to gather the wood, the women would get the meal ready. And um, I just thought that was some of the most fun times and beautiful times that um, that I had with my family when I was growing up. Yeah. And so thankful that you know, we had that opportunity. This is called Easter Sunday. Driving to the mountains at noon through sagebrush and pinyon trees. Children gather wood. Uncle builds fire. Mother and daughters prepare food. Flames burning good and hot. Coals ready. Grill on. Push cold around, stew on, stir it now and then, skillet ready for fried bread, watch smoke rise, slap dough into large thin circles, edges lumpy, pull dough, make holes, it's okay, put in skillet anyway, watch it floating, makes bubbles, turns brown, turn it over, feel heat on face and hands, Grandma, scolding aunt, doesn't know how to cut mutton ribs. Grandma fixes, puts back on grill, watches ribs sizzle brown, turn over, drop in ashes, dust it off, put back on grill, hope grandma didn't see. Fry bread stack getting higher, push more coals under skillet. My son moves closer to the fire, raises hand. Hot, hot, he says. Uncle comes, takes it away from cooking. Stew boiling over, hisses and drips into the coals. Take lid off, coffee steaming, 
grounds bubbling, breeze blowing, carries away coffee smell, ribs cooked, coffee boiled, fried bread stacked, stew boiled, stomach grumbling, mouth watering, anticipation, plates full, sit down, under tree, family together, give thanks, we eat now. Yeah, That's my Laura. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. welcome. And um, just want to say, too, just congratulations on getting uh, the um, your press set up. It's a really big project and so proud of you that you're doing this. And I know you're going to make it grow and it's going to be a wonderful thing that you've started. So I'm thankful for that, too. Aw, thank you. A very big ahiehet and thank you to all of the interviewees, the writers, the editors, um, everyone that was part of the Diné Reader, you know, that I talked to for this podcast, and then also to all the writers that, you know, wrote something and submitted to the Diné Reader, because it's just... It's such a beautiful book, and I hope that everyone out there um, that hears this podcast will read the book. Um, You can find it pretty much anywhere books are sold. Uh, You can find it online um, and even through the press, University of Arizona. And yeah, so this was this felt like a very special episode Um, just because I got to interview three different writers um, different backgrounds, different ages. And, you know, I, it it was just a very fun learning experience to hearing, hearing all of their advice. And I hope some of the advice is helpful for some of the listeners out, out there. And we cannot end this episode without our writing prompt. And our writing prompt is coming from Byron this month. So the writing prompt that he sent to me is roadmaps are a part of everyone's childhood where each road tells a story of an incident that may have happened to you, your parents, or your family. Find a road. Make that road the title of your piece. Tell the story that is entwined within the road. Tell the story of the rocks or the land that surrounds that particular road. Use the senses of the body to create images that help the story come to life as words unfold from the mind. Concrete detail is important when retelling story. Recreate that sacred space you reflect about. Share the moment, the story, the words that create this beautiful landscape. And you can submit your writing prompt response to books at abalonemountainpress.com. And a few of our writing prompt giveaway items for this month are going to be, of course, the Danae Reader book um, and a book by Laura Tohey called No Parole Today and a pair of earrings by 
Becky Jones. Um, she's also known as Moon Girl 666 on Instagram. And she's also the lead singer of a very well-known band called Weed Rat. And she's a sexual health educator based out of Albuquerque, New Mexico. And um, so she's submitting in some, or she's, uh, pr- she made some earrings that are made out of resin and sage and uh, they're beautiful. Everything she like puts on her website or wherever she sells her earrings, they sell out within seconds. So <laughs> I'm glad I got um, some of her earrings for the giveaway. And let's see what else. Um, I'll be doing a couple more items. And of course, there'll be a Danae artist. And I'm very excited for the giveaway. And it'll be on our website, www.abalonemountainpress.com. Stay tuned for that on our website. And that is the end of today's podcast. I hope you have a good day, good weekend, good month, and a cool summer. See you next time theme song is Summer Cactus by Colorful King.